Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. We've all used Google Images, right? You've all done this on the internet. You want an image of a a teacup or an adorable internet kitten or something like that? No problem. Google is easy. But for you art buffs out there, you might know that for serious art, for serious research, Google Images is actually fairly limited, right? Yeah, it'll have masterpieces and other famous pieces of work, but if you've ever tried to do any serious research, it's really pretty thin, whether it's because pieces are in private collections or just not popular enough to ever have photos taken of them. It's tough. It's tough to actually get good information. Well, this week's guest is taking the idea of a visual search engine to a whole new level. Benoit Sagan, you'll have to excuse my French accent if that's not perfectly correct, has built a visual search engine specifically for art historians to use in studying authorship and authenticity, compositional influences, and and a bunch more stuff. So for any of you true art nerds out there, stay tuned. I think you're going to really dig this episode. So please welcome Benoit Sagan. So welcome, everybody, to another episode of The State of the Art. And uh, this week we have uh, computer scientist, I guess would be your technical title, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be the best definition, probably. <laughs> and uh, his name is Benoit. You're going to have to say your last name for me. Seguin? Seguin. Seguin, yeah. Okay. Um, and so, first of all, Benoit, thank you for being here with us today, for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so, so you were actually introduced to us by a former state of the art guest, uh, Jason Bailey of a website called art gnome. Um, for anybody who's listening, who has not heard that episode, go back, check it out. Episode 34. Um, but art gnome is a, a huge database that was created by this guy, Jason Bailey, um, that he described as the money ball for art. So this guy kind of knows databases around the art world, but he described your work as the first visual search engine for art history using computer advanced computer vision. Would you say that that's sort of an accurate description of the the project that you've been working on? Um, yeah, that would be relatively accurate in the sense that uh, you can see some uh, visual search engine in um, in some databases. But they are not leveraging the the, lot, the latest advances in computer vision that really uh, allows to unlock a different kind of knowledge. So, what is so? Can you give us kind of the ten thousand foot view? What is from a very high level the project, and what's what's its goal? So, um, the project is called is called Replica, and it was initiated as part of the of the Venice Time Machine project, uh, and. Uh, so it was launched by my supervisor, Frédéric Kaplan, and my co-supervisor, who is an art historian, uh, Isabella Di Leonardo. And the idea was that, well, photo archives uh, are this huge library in art institution where uh, art historians were when the, um, the uh, photographic technology was created. 
they say, well, this is great. This really allows us as art historians to do our job differently because we can gather all the visual information in a single physical place. So they took these huge campaigns of uh, of, uh, photogra- uh, of photogra- of pho- taking photographs of every art piece available, uh, and big art historians under uh, 20th century was, were part of that effort. And um, back to our present days, the idea was, well, these are nowadays shelves of old uh, photographs which are often underused because they are difficult to navigate. And in, uh, in our world, when we just expect to type something in Google and get the information in, in a couple of seconds, uh, going through this uh, physical mess sometimes um, was was a was a bit of a missed opportunity. Uh, that was kind of the idea. So by uh, the idea was to say, well, this is standard material, this our photographs. So it's it should be possible to efficiently digitize all of that and get a huge collection of images from that. And then, assuming you have a huge collection of digital images this time, then you can do very interesting things. And the first step in that direction was the one that we're that we've been taking. Uh, was to uh, make a search engine on this database and especially a visual search engine so that you can find um, similar artworks without looking even at the metadata, at the textual metadata. So that's a bit like the big picture of what uh, what was the original idea. Yeah. So so when these art historians were taking these photographs, first of all, what time period are we talking about? They would have been just photographing. Well, it was rather, it was um, when the photograph uh, technology start, started appearing. So I don't want to give a precise date because I'm sure I'm going to make a mistake. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, it's it's basically late uh, late nineteenth uh, century and early twentieth century, uh, and then started started spreading a big uh, big uh, like um, if you take the Alinari Brothers in Italy, there was this company that were very um, very pioneers of commercial photography in a way, hmm. uh, and they were really uh, taking photographs of a lot of art pieces in different in different part of the world. What's really interesting about this photograph is that because they are still like you know hundred hundred years old, uh, sometimes you get uh, you get the that's the only trace of an original state of hmm. the art, like if it was before restoration, for instance. Uh, we don't have any other trace of that. Maybe through an engraving, but that's still not going to be exactly the same um, fidelity of reproduction. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and then I think you might have already said this, but what what exactly was their purpose for photographing this? What were they trying to learn by building this archive? Well, I think it's uh, we have to um, to think back in a pre-photograph world. Uh, and like we are so used to have photographs everywhere. Yeah. But before that, when you had to study different art pieces that you didn't have your hands on, uh, that were maybe in, like in churches in different parts of the world, then you had either to rely on your, on your uh, visual memory or photographic memory. You had to have a drawing of it or an engraving of it. Uh, so you needed to have a reproduction or your memory. Hmm. Uh, and so that's costly uh, if you need to have people draw things so that they can get so you can gather them um, and um, yeah so the and that really was also used a lot by uh, connoisseurs 
um, like uh, like uh, Berenson that was very famous for his for his uh, for taking for his uh, photo collection and it was leveraging that for uh, attribution and authorship mm. uh, in the century as well. Because you can, if you have the images, you can see well this this element is exactly the same as this one. This this sort of um, this sort of arguments that is much more difficult to do if you just rely on your memory. Hmm. So so like on the <laughs> it seems like on the altruistic side, like these things can be useful for learning kind of um, teaching trees almost. Like who would have studied who and who could have influenced whom in their in their works. And then on the cynical side, it's to protect against people faking it and being able to learn the difference between originals and fakes because if you have the detailed uh photograph of the original then you can kind of pick up on those thumbprints of the artist right but that's a that's even that's a even more global uh consideration is like as soon as something is too well understood that it's uh it's easier to forge right basically Right. Uh, right. We had this discussion not uh, a couple of months ago in a in a workshop in New York about like um, people were really interested in authorship in uh, authorship and attribution. Sure. And say, well, what does a computer can do for us? And one of the remarks was like, well, if you find an algorithm that very well defines what is a Vermeer or what is a what is a Rubens, then it's going to be much more easy to actually make fakes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, well, <laughs> that's that's an inherent um, concept. <laughs> right. Let me avoid that. Always the dark side of technology, right? Staying one yeah. step ahead of the police. <laughs> uh, and then, well, so one of the other interesting benefits of working with a museum archive versus, say, Google Pictures. I mean, obviously, while Google Photos outnumber everything because anybody can contribute to it, what you gain from uh, from museum archives is that you actually have this really rich data set with the what you call textual metadata, but for listeners who might not be technologically savvy, I mean, that's just information about the piece, right? Can you explain a little bit mm -hmm. like about the richness of the information there? Well, I would just come back to the, to your idea that uh, you will have everything on Google photos and surprisingly not huh. uh, because, well, you get, you will get the, um, the important pieces, uh, the masterpieces, the artwork, which are everywhere, which have their own Wikipedia page, sure. Mm. But if you want to, um, for, some, uh, for some analysis and some research question, you might want to have like a much broader uh, view of the, of the artistic production. And you might want to have like the secondary arts, artworks, uh, the, um, the workshop series, like you want to have as big of a coverage as possible. Right, and uh, even if you get to, if you even if you go online and look at everything there is online, or if you go at the Google Cultural Institute uh, and what they have, you're really, really far from having the coverage uh, photo archives have. Hmm. Uh, because a lot of art pieces are maybe in like the in the back room of a museum. Maybe right. they are in private collections. Uh, they are sometimes not accessible to the public. They might be. Uh, fresco in tiny churches in the middle of the hmm. of Italian Alps, yeah. um, like that. And unless people specifically went there, saying like we'll get as much as possible, you might get two billion pictures, but you will get five hundred thousand pictures of um, of the Gioconda, and right. you don't need five hundred thousand of them. <laughs> right, uh, right. 
So already, like, in order to get the biggest coverage to try to reconstruct what was the artistic production over centuries, hmm. then um, you want to get everything. And that's where, um, you know, we're lucky that art history and when the photographic uh, technology became available, they did that work of, you know, zigzagging through the world and going in every single place, uh, places, um, being at uh, art auctions to mm. photograph uh, art pieces when they go through the public eye. Yeah. Uh, kind of, this kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's for that reason. As far as metadata is concerned, to come back to your original question, um, this like uh, very, this is a very complex uh, subject in the sense that there is no proper standardization usually in the, in these documents because these documents are usually um, photographic collection of and of individuals that were gathered together in the, in the collection of institution in the library of institutions. Yeah. Um, and as such, are a bunch of handwritten notes on the back of photograph, uh, and uh, like you don't really have a very organized information. It's not a tabular version, which is like oh, attribution, place, uh, date of production. You usually don't know when when it was produced, right? Um, so all these kind of things. So we and that was not the focus of, of our project. A lot of uh, a lot of digital digital humanities projects are dealing are dealing with this kind of thing. Gotcha. Kind of technologies. Just to, to add a precision, so our project was uh, in in um, in a close collaboration with uh, Giorgio Cini Foundation. Okay. In, uh, and that's that was their collection that we worked with because, um, as I was saying, photo archives has this huge amount of data, but when we started the project, almost very like almost none of it was digitized and available. Right. So part of the project was actually also going there. Uh, and digitize uh, at least like part of the collection to uh, to be able to make yeah something out of it. So you had to take pictures of all the pictures, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, not not, not me, and uh, and uh, for that we had a very good collaboration between between so us at CPFL, uh, the univer my university in Lausanne, um, the Cini Foundation and uh, Factumarte, which is a company based in Madrid, um, directed by Adam Lowe, who is a fantastic character. Um, and, uh, and they designed a scanner specific for this task uh, that was uh, allowing operators to scan one photograph every four seconds, I think. Oh, wow. So they though, um, they could digitize three hundred forty thousand photographs in thirteen months. Wow! So and that really allowed. I mean, when I started the, when I started this project, I was I was never expecting we would actually get the data before I would finish <laughs> my PhD. You thought it was but, all going to be theoretical. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> okay, like that's going to be great, but that's not going to work, right? <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it it went much much faster than ever any anybody expected. So uh, so we could digitize yeah like uh, like thirty four thirty four um, uh, three hundred forty thousand images which now are indexed in the database and then you can search for it. And uh, you know people at the people at the Chinese they they use uh, they use what we build every day basically to uh, to find things because. Uh, it's much more efficient for them to use it now that uh, than to search manually. Yeah. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. What are what are people using this for every day now? So, um, 
when uh, the the people at the Chini which are using it every day uh, are mostly using just the fact that it's a digitized um, digitized collection. So they don't use a, they don't use the visual search capabilities as much for now, from, by, from my experience. I think because um, they um, they need to have a, a research project based on this and to actually leverage that, and that that was not uh, that was not the case yet. But um, they used it a lot for uh, for just finding things in it, just saying like, uh, oh, I want to find like all the photographs we have of this specific artist hmm. because. This the organization quite is quite of a flat one. Um, just a simple question like that, you have you have um, you have images in a lot of different drawers. So you and you need to physically go to like half a dozen or dozen different shelves to just answer a simple question like that. Right. Because usually the the I think the photographs are mostly organized uh, geographically. So or from which museum the these photographs come from, basically. So if you want to have like a global view of the production of a given artist whose artworks were scattered, uh, then for instance, just something like that. Um, but they are, they're, they're more interested in, in uh, other sort of results we got, uh, for instance, when we automatically detected some, uh, some uh, attribution conflicts in the collection. Hmm. That's something we might come, might come about after. Yeah. Well, and what are some of the, you know, has anybody proposed or thought through what some of the other types of research projects that this could be used for are? Is there any creative things that you're hoping this gets used for? Well, a lot, uh, some, originally we were just interested in, um, in finding the reappearance of patterns and the propagation of forms. Uh, so that's more something specified to um, Western art. Uh, and from the 1500 to the 1800s. So it's already, so that's why the a Venetian corpus for us was really good because, um, it was kind of a perfect target for the, for that kind of a, of a research question. And the idea was, okay, how can we track this kind of propagation of form in the general sense? And, uh, how could we, uh, you, uh, how could we reuse it to try to see well, influences in the creative process uh, and information about the creative process when you have an element that we are bearing through the, um, through the same production of an artist of a workshop. So this were kind of the original question. So in a way, then what we built at the end is just a tool that is very generic. Uh, it can be used for, for, different, for different things in order to... In general, it's in order to, to, uh, to, um, to look at the... Um, as the production practices in general, especially the idea that it was much more serial than one could think originally. That mm. uh, the, um, you will reuse often the same kind of, which is something that's kind of known by now, that you will reuse some cardboards to reproduce uh, some individual shapes. Like, uh, okay, like I'm gonna, I need a hand right here, so I kind of take a Take a um, take a cartoon that will exactly the shape of the hand I want. Put it here. Draw the outline. Mm. Uh, the blank, basically. Right. Um, and that's that's uh, something that uh, this this kind of help to unravel to kind of uh, find. Oh, this thing is the same here than that. Uh, in terms of global composition and global influences as well. Where here I can see that these two artists did the same thing. Yeah. Probably the, it's not 
it's not random. There has to be some common information between them. So this, yeah. um, this kind of, this kind of things. Yeah, that's interesting. So like, so what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is you know, if a painter is going to draw a hand on a figure, there are infinite orientations that a hand could be in, right? But by by looking at sort of the pattern of what hands they're actually using and what orientation it's actually in, you can see that they're likely using some common reference point, um, whether it's one of the one of the big masters or just their teacher or something like that. They're probably uh, using some reference point that's sort of aiding the creative process. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though that's not something we're, we're uh, able to track properly yet, just because if it's a tiny detail, um, in the in the in the painting of the artwork, we're not able, we're not yet able technically to find it uh, mm. elsewhere. In some cases, we can, but not working so so well for that very specific question. Right. But it's um, it's related to this um, to this other question of this uh, of uh, this reuse of uh, of um, of ideas, uh, very precise yeah. reuse idea. Which um, I mean, we've seen things like that when when uh, when you t- you find uh, sometimes two two paintings. One is originally by Raffaello. The second one is associated to the school of Raffaello or like followers of Raffaello. And then if you compare them with each other, you will see that the outline of the main character are, are exactly the same up to the millimeter. Basically. Wow! Wow! Uh, like you can basically align them. You can use computer vision for that. You can align the two images and show like a blending between the two of them. Yeah. And yeah, there is no displacement of, of any line basically. So so that means a lot from like the from the the creative process behind and the production process. Yeah. Yeah. There, I guess that implies a certain level of precision, right? Yeah, and. Um, Especially that in the, in that kind of situation, you can look at the the um, effective size of the element on the canvas. Yeah, and you can often find that they're actually physically exactly the same size. Huh. <laughs> so that's also like a, a good a, a good indication that probably it was not just looking at it and being very being very good at copying something. Right, right, uh, right. Uh, I mean, that that also a lot of a lot of ways to do it, like uh, by by uh, basically. Drawing like horizontal and vertical lines on the original one, on the original one, and trying to transcribe to transcribe the kind of proportion on another on another canvas. But right. when you reach that level of precision, um, you have to you probably need an, another another method of production. But then right. kind of, that's kind of changing the world of it. It's it's a production now. And right, right, right. I think. It's, I think what these tools uh, and the, the the mass of data and the tools we've created is a bit helping us to to um, to study that direction. Hey everybody, I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second. First and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening. Uh, we really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously, you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first is leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. 
The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. So when you talked about propagation of forms, so that's you're talking there about um, the propagation of forms compositionally, like where where certain forms show up in the composition itself and how you compare that to other compositions. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, maybe I should have introduced that a bit, but I, I, I when, you've, you <laughs> no, know, it's... when you've been in a project for four years, you just assume that a lot of things are obvious. Right, but, right, right. Uh, um, so yeah, so for instance, if you take the, if you take the, um, if you take the, uh, the um, archetypal composition of the Sleeping Venus by right. uh, George Orling, um, then uh, you have a lot of kind of variations and like a, it kind of creates a standard composition and everybody tr- modifies it a bit. Like we change a bit the position of the hand, the position of the head character and so on. So, but it was still a very standardized thing that then you have small variation and it kind of creates like a complete le- visual landscape. Hmm. For a given composition, and that's that's uh, that's quite interesting to see these kind of influences because then you can you can say that probably okay that thing that was created two two centuries later uh, is maybe not directly because there might be intermediate links in the connection. Maybe the maybe the artist never saw the one that created this original archetypal composition. Right. Uh, but still like there's this whole influence that we can that we try to reconstruct. Um, what's interesting though is that with um, with our tool we are just trying to look at visual correlation, which is not influence in the sense that what we are only trying to say is uh, here there is something here and here that is you know, kind of visually the same, but we're not saying anything further than that, which is, right. okay, which things came first, if there is an actual influence between the two, or, right. but, um, or maybe the, or maybe they actually never were aware of each other, or maybe it's, maybe it's actually pure coincidence that also can happen in, in some situation. Yeah. So that's then all this kind of um, rezoning, which is the most important part probably, is still like much much more the realm of an art historian. Yeah, uh, we're only trying to find when we, what we're only trying to do is help find these species of knowledge that can be used to build the reasoning on top. Yeah, but that's what makes it so exciting and fun. I mean, from just a little bit that I kind of tinkered around with it, that's what makes it interesting. Is that you know you you are only presenting the visual correlation, but then immediately anybody with even a tiny bit of curiosity is going to, the next step is, okay, well, why do these two things look so much alike? What is the, what is the connection between these two things? Because sure, it may be a coincidence, but if you're talking about things that are within a millimeter tolerance of, (laughs) of each other, then likely there's some bigger story there that, you know, maybe obvious, maybe not. Right. Yeah, definitely. But, um, but that's not something, I mean, that's not something I did because right. I'm a computer scientist. Right, 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 right. Even even though I mean I, I surprised myself spending um, an unhealthy amount of time exploring this, uh, <laughs> this large collection and saying, oh, what about these things? Like, can we find that somewhere else? Um, and because you have such 
a large coverage of the artistic production. You get a such different view than the one you would get by learning um, a standard artistry art book. Not saying it's better, but it's a completely different view in the sense that you emerge yourself in this in this uh, space of the visual uh, of the vi visual production, basically. Yeah. And uh, so you actually see what do they mean by this this piece was important like you can see directly that well like it was copied by quite a few people after and it has a lot it had quite an influence and people reused elements and things things like that and that you can kind of get almost organically and explore right. this kind of variation if you take an art history book usually you have a very limited number of images hmm. like maybe a hundred hundred images that would be already a lot uh, we have four hundred thousand. So, not saying they are all as important and as relevant for the for the discussion than the one hundred which were handpicked. <laughs> right, right. But, but it's still a completely different scale. Yeah. So, what are what have been some of your interesting learnings from playing around with it? Have you found any surprises? Uh, any surprises? Well, there's a thing that I really, that I really enjoy. If you take the, um, if you take the Virgin of the Rock by uh, Leonardo da Vinci. So you get w one version in the Louvre, one version in the, one version in the, uh, in the National Gallery of Art in, in, uh, in the National Gallery in London. Um, and uh, then what, what you can do with this tool, what, uh, what we did eventually was to find, well, all, a bunch of copies, of course, and variation with different, different format, different ratio that were done by, uh, by followers. But then you can also see that um, the two uh, the two uh, elements in the foreground, uh, the two babies in the foreground, which are uh, Jesus Christ and and Saint John, mm. were reused as individual as individual characters in other in other paintings. Huh. And if you follow if you follow that, you can see that uh, they like a, they will be used by some of Leonardo's followers. So you have the figures of. Uh, Saint John being used that as uh, as just a simple angel in a Bernardino Luini thing, who uh, was a was a follower of Leonardo. You get um, also like there's a figure of Jesus Christ being reused in a completely different composition, where uh, the, the version is completely different position, and you have angels playing instruments on the side, but hmm. Jesus would be exactly the same, and these are. Two, follow, two other followers uh, of another interesting thing is these two artworks are only in private collection. At ah. least that's what written on things. So they will probably be hard to, to get uh, if you were just doing do you work manually. If you go online, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure this this uh, these photographs are online at all. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, and even you find like a, a kind of standard uh, like a variation where the, the babies are exactly the same. Um, the Virgin is kind of a mirrored pose, and then it's a coronation of the Virgin hmm. uh, in Padova, I think, something like that. Um, and so, yeah, this kind of thing that you find, like the the, the, the relationship and the visual correlation between art between artworks, and see like why why was that thing so influential, and then you can you can kind of reconstruct the influence it had, not up to today, but like at the time of its uh, of its production. Normally. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool, man. It's uh, I, it's so much fun just to play around and see those those little weird links that pop up whenever you start combining images and stuff. Um, 
So what are one of the things I love talking to scientists is that uh, scientists tend to be very distinct about what their projects cannot do. And, uh, you know, anybody else will just lie to you and tell you that everything is possible. Scientists are very particular about saying this is what I did and this is what I did not do. So what are some of the limitations of the system right now? Um, some of the limitation, I think that with any visual retrieval system, um, it's not it's not like you get a performance between uh, which is either you don't get anything or you get everything. It's kind of a it's kind of a spectrum. So we kind of uh, we kind of expect that okay, like if if you start with an image as your query and you ask for relevant image and uh, there is actually um, an image which is relevant for your search, then there's a probability, basically depending on the difficulty of the of the question, that you might that you might get it or not, basically. Mm, so right. uh, we're not we're not saying that we find everything. Definitely not. It's not a, a, like sometimes sometimes it's it's actually very difficult because you you will get on one side like a like a very quick sketch of something and on the other like a like a half destroyed fresco and you try to match this kind of thing. So we're not we're not advertising that you find uh, that we find everything. Yeah. Um, Though we worked a lot, basically, to improve to uh, get a performance as high as possible, so we used like a lot of a lot of complicated things. We trained a system that was very specific for the research question we had, so so that was using the input of art historians saying these two things are similar and you should consider them as similar because there is the same form here and here, um, and that way you can really improve the quality uh, the quality of the result. Uh, also, um, in terms of, as I was saying, in terms of like the, um, the, the size of details, like if you're trying to say, well, can you find me like that hand? Yeah. Um, we're not yet there. Technically, technically you probably could get something based just that the answer might take like 15 minutes to compute. Yeah. Uh, which in the grand scheme of thing, if that's your life research question, it's nothing. Right. But when you build a system, we've got, we've got accustomed to uh, Google answers, which take one second top. Right, right, right. Uh, and people expect that a, comp that a computer algorithm doesn't take more than that. <laughs> uh, and there is a trade-off between the speed of the answer and the quality of it. So. <laughs> right. That's, isn't that funny, man? We're, we're living the world that if it's not within, if it's not returned to your browser window in the first half a millisecond, then... It's no good. It's a junk system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been spoiled. We yeah. really. <laughs> so, um, so I'm curious to learn a little bit more about you, Benoit. That you know, the field of computer vision is something that is um, exploding right now, uh, mm -hmm. especially especially when paired. I mean, there's traditional computer vision, but obviously the modern stuff is AI or deep learning sort of driven. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of really lucrative kind of high-tech applications of computer vision right now. Why did you decide to kind of um, go into the fine art world with your your uh, academic endeavors? Well, it was a bit of... Um, of it, was, um, yeah, it was a bit random, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm someone who, who like culture a lot, even if I... I always preferred more uh, architecture and classical music than than the visual arts originally. Yeah, um, but I never had a proper um, 
the proper teaching in, in this uh, in this field, apart from the standard uh, humanities course you're taking and the introduction to art history course I took sure. back in university. Uh, but definitely not much, much more than that. Thing is, so I wanted to do originally a PhD in computer vision and machine learning. I started with uh, biomedical imaging. And mm. I realized that uh, I was not en enjoying myself in that because um, it's just everybody's fighting for this 1% of performance. Uh, right. You spend four years and you say, well, algorithm was 79% performance. No, there are 80%. I spent four years in that. I mean, that was not something that, that was really appealing to me and I saw it fulfilling. Hmm. Uh, so, um, so after a couple of months, uh, like it kind of met, uh, Frederick, my supervisor, a bit by chance. Uh, he told me, well, we have this actual, this actual question that there is something to find, but we don't know anything about it. I remember the first meeting we had, he basically just had one book on, on Bruegel. And I say, look, like they reuse the same thing. Like there is something to be found out, but we had no data. We had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's how it started. And I was like, well, sure, why not? And I started doing six months on that. Um, and then after six months, I said, yeah, this is going to be my PhD. And uh, so the, the project was, I've been, so I just defended my, my PhD a couple of weeks ago. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, so the project was three years and a half. Which is relatively wow. short. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's how it started. I really enjoyed it because you have to work with different kind of people. You have to work with archivists, art historians. So there is a lot of pedagogy involved. Hmm. And I'm someone who loves teaching and who loves learning and who loves discussing with people uh, which are uh, from a different background than me. So I really, really enjoy that. Questions were extremely open. Um, and I had the chance to be uh, left with the uh, freedom to explore what I wanted to explore and what felt important to me. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, it was a very enjoyable experience, definitely. Yeah. I'm afraid if there are any computer scientists, computer vision people listening to that, oh. go do digital art history. It's a lot of fun. Community is growing, by the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, from a subject matter standpoint, I mean, if computer vision is your world, you know, working with famous images or, or, you know, a rich data set of very interesting images is going to be interesting, you know, not just from a creative perspective, but from the, from the nerds perspective too, right? The data richness that, that is involved in examining a bunch of classical paintings. Um, so where, where do you want this project to go? I mean, you know, you've, you've defended now, Obviously, this this version of the product is kind of wrapped up, but where would you like this to go? And are you going to stick with the project or is this getting handed off to someone else? So, I mean, the project definitely will not die. Uh, there's been a renewed uh, collaboration between the um, Cicini Foundation, Factor Marte and EPFL to, to, create a, to create a center in Venice for this kind of uh, uh, machine learning, image processing, analysis for digitization, and and also like uh, enhancing the the value of the digital um, artifacts. Um, but um, so I've went I, I went against a, a, an academia career, so I uh, I'm not gonna do a postdoc most likely. Um, but uh, I'm ex I'm evaluating either staying in this kind of um, 
world at the intersection of machine learning and archives. Uh, maybe as a, as an independent consultant or contractors that you know like if you have this kind of uh, this kind of um, machine learning computer vision questions on the, on the, as an institution but you don't have the expertise most likely I can have I can have them do that and that's very that's very enjoyable but I would keep some some freedom I hate publishing and writing. Yeah. So <laughs> I would avoid I would avoid that part of academia that I really don't enjoy. I'm I really I like to get my hands dirty. I like things to work. I like making things happen. But I don't like, you know, writing grants and this kind of thing, which is yeah, um, which the is academic life. Yeah, which which has a lot of pros as well. I mean, like the the, the freedom you get and this kind of, this kind of thing. But, sure. But yeah, uh, or maybe or just. Go back to the industry, and that was my uh, that was my part of the the part of my life where I was dealing with cultural heritage. I enjoyed every second of it, but maybe I'll go for a new adventure. I don't know yet. Yeah. But at least for the for the first for the next six months, I will I will still work in in uh, in that field. Probably like a might be in collaboration. It's not official yet, but on bringing visual search to uh, to other. Um, to other corpuses like newspaper, for instance, hmm. uh, like archives of newspapers. So we'll we'll see where it goes. Yeah, interesting. Well, regardless of where your career takes you, you're. Uh, I, I'm sure that the people in the in the art world are thankful for your contributions. I mean, it's a really cool tool, and uh, I was lucky enough to get kind of a behind the scenes look at it, and um, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's fascinating, and I think it's. Uh, as you said, there's there's going to be a lot of research applications for this thing. So, um, so and congratulations again on on the PhD defense. I know that's a that's a huge deal. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks a lot. That was like writing the thesis was definitely not the happiest uh, happiest period of my life. <laughs> it's done. I'm happy it is. Right, you get the stamped piece of paper coming out the other side, right? Yeah, well, not not yet officially, but that's right because we have a, not officially, but right. That's the goal, anyways. Practice, yeah, like the <laughs> like uh, in practice, they say yes, but the paper is not there yet. So right, 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 right. <laughs> so we're all waiting with bated breath for the piece of paper. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, cool. Thank you so much, Benoit. This has been a really interesting uh, chat. But before I let you go. Uh, as the listeners know, we have to do a rapid fire section of the interview. So the idea here is I'm just going to fire off a couple questions and you got to fire back whatever first comes to mind. All right. Oh, God, I'm I will regret this. <laughs> uh, you'll do just fine, I think. All right. So the first one should be easy. You have to remember back to your childhood. What was your favorite cartoon show growing up? Oh well, I'm, uh, I don't know the name in English. The one when you have like two mouses and they're trying to conquer the world. <laughs> Pinky in the brain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that is a great answer. That was one of my favorites. They're Pinky and uh, the brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the generic is awesome. I, <laughs> I did cover not so long ago that uh, Steven Spielberg was an executive producer of that. Yeah. Yeah, for the well, so Pinky and the Brain, I think, was a skit on Animaniacs, and then right. and then it split off as its own show because it was so popular. <laughs> that's a, that's a great answer, man. <laughs> so, what was what are you? I should know this, but are you Italian? 
What is Benoit? No, I'm French originally. French, sorry. So what is the name in French? Uh, Minus et Cortex. <laughs> I'm going to have to punch that into Google Translate later to see how it comes back out. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, well, Google Translate can be surprisingly good sometimes. <laughs> I, I'm glad you actually had to ask what my citizenship is. That means my French accent is getting better. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I mean, maybe I'm a terrible, uh, a, a terrible audience. I don't know, but I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm probably not helping my reputation as a stupid American right now, but that's all right. <laughs> so, okay. So rapid fire question. Classic question. If you were stranded on a desert island and you could only bring one book with you, what would that book be? Uh, the the um, Well-Tempered Clavier by John Sebastian Bach. Wow. Okay. But <laughs> the thing is, like, I wanted a piece of music, but I should have taken a bigger one so there's more to see. Maybe <laughs> the Art of the Fugue, then. It would have made more sense. Anyway. Wow. That is impressive. I did not expect a piece of music to be the book, but that's a great answer as well. Do you play, by the way? Yeah, I used to play the piano quite a bit uh, until I was 18, 20. And then with university, it has been a bit difficult to uh, sure. to give it up. And then uh, I'm, I've been doing more like a choir singing in the last couple of years uh, and enjoyed, enjoyed it a lot. Nice. All right. Well, then this last question will be uh, very relevant for you. When at the ripe old age of, say, 150 years and, uh, you know, you've accomplished all your career goals and personal goals in your life and you finally pass on to the next life, what music do you want to be playing at your funeral? Oh, easy. Um, Forrest Requiem. Very nice. Very nice. That's like an extremely easy answer for me uh i don't know if you if you know that piece but it's uh it's a very positive view on death and uh really as a as a as a door to the next life and it's not tragic at all there is no yeah it's very peaceful it's awesome very nice we'll have to include a link to that piece in the description of the podcast so listeners can go and check out that piece of music that's awesome i like that mm -hmm. <laughs> Cool, Benoit. Well, how can listeners learn a little bit more about your project? Is it going to get published? Well, um, so something I need to do, I think, because there are quite a few things in my um, in my uh, PhD thesis that were not published material because it it came at relatively at the end, so we didn't have time to publish it yet. So. Most likely, I will try to to write in the in the next week or so a um, couple of blog posts to give a global overview of yeah. uh, what we achieved. So there, there there were some of them that I did, but like two years ago uh, at okay. like very early stage of the process. So probably probably on my website there is the uh, there is a project page on the on the lab website. It's a bit very short. So um, so yeah, that's a bit about it now. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll make sure to include links to that stuff too in case any of the listeners are interested to check out the, the project. Well, thank you so much, Benoit. It's been a, a real pleasure. Your project is fascinating and uh, I wish you all the best with with whatever's next for you in the in the career. Thank you a lot for having me. I had a very good time. Awesome. Well, glad to have you and, uh, you know, stay well. Talk to you soon. See ya. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
As always, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the State of the Art. Big thanks to Benoit for sharing his work, his PhD thesis. Uh, Super interesting. I mean, it really scratches my itch as a nerd uh, and someone who enjoys the art world. So I hope that you enjoyed it as well. And if you want to check out more of his work, uh, check out the show notes for this episode. We'll have links to his labs project and his personal page. So lots more there. Uh, And as always, if you're interested in what we're doing here, if you like the podcast, if you like this episode, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. That's the most helpful thing you can do for us or any podcast that you listen to. So until next time, I am Andrew Herman, and this has been State of the Art.